It's November 29th, 2021, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines. The first one we got, JADC2 cross-functional team adds new transport working group from FedScoop. Uh, the the JADC2 cross-functional team now has six working groups. The transport and warfighter communication was activated on Tuesday. Um, the CFT will actually work with the, the Jake, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, to leverage the Jake's acquisition authorities to get an industry together and, and get contracts on. Um, in the first three to six months, its top priorities will be working well in the new working group will be to find capability gaps in satellite based communication systems and recommend integration of multi-cloud technologies. The team will focus on how enterprise cloud will enable tactical edge networks, especially for the joint warfighting cloud capability, which of course is that, uh, multiple award for the, the old Jedi, right? <laughs> So looks like the the JADC2 cross-functional team here in the in the J6 is kind of gearing up. You know, I guess I wonder, you know, how much are they really kind of like internalizing and creating their own little empire there um, and whether it's almost starting to look a little bit like a, a program office itself or something, something like what was going on with the Army cross-functional teams, which apparently some people have said kind of created their own empires and onboarded their own staff. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of interesting when you look at the full scope of the of this new new working group. Um, I mean, what is it here? They have uh, terrestrial network modernization, undersea cables, software-defined environment networking, cryptology, cross-domain services, you know, the EM spectrum, wireless and 5G. So, yeah, but they have a lot of stuff on there that, you know, undoubtedly, given that JADC2 is all focused on communication. <laughs> um, some of that stuff is gonna is gonna uh, cross over. So you're gonna having just one team working on this without. And this is the part I don't know really about how the CFTs are working, is how they are kind of crossing the streams with each other. So are they um, are they tagging up? Do they have kind of across team groups that are focused on, you know, um, okay, well if you guys are working on a software defined environment. Uh, networking, you know, how do we apply, uh, you know, those standards or those uh, technologies uh, to what we're doing in some of these, in some of those other groups, because undoubtedly you're going to have that. And of course, 5G is going to be, you know, common across any of those communication, anything at the edge, you're probably going to need, um, need to project that type of bandwidth because of all the data that you'll be flowing and you want to make sure it's super, super timely, especially if, you know, autonomy and AI you know, are doing, are doing their thing. You're really going to have to make sure um, that you can get the data there or won't be able to, to work properly. So yeah, pretty interesting. Um, I hope it does. I hope this does, you know, this group actually, um, you know, has the right vision and has the right charter so that, you know, because of some of the things it's tackling are just absolutely critical. So, you know, one of the things was about finding capability gaps, like you said, in satellite-based comm. I mean, that's, that's going to be really key is, making sure you can cover kind of the, the poles and, you know, those, those areas where, um, you won't, you won't necessarily have access to, um, you know, to a network. So yeah, a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff to watch here. <laughs> are the, the polar satcom, that's a separate program, right? And are, is that just like completely on a different, you know, standard or messaging basis than, than the rest of them? I don't know. I mean, I think, I, I can't say for sure. I mean, they're, they're all, they're all SATCOM terminals. There are different SATCOM terminals, so it, it does depend. But in general, they, um, I think the secure SATCOM, they do, they do use a common uh, messaging format. Um, so, you know, for, for things that uh, have a particular mission, like an NC3 mission or, um, you know, some other type of, uh, of protected, kind of protected SATCOM, they, they do have some common standards. But yeah, just for, for general comm, just for getting, you know, piping large amounts of, of data, maybe that's not, uh, that isn't super secure um, or isn't, um, you know, isn't at the higher levels of classification, then um, yeah, I, I imagine like, I think the next article we'll talk about, there's, it depends on the radios and then it depends on, you know, the structure of the messaging and all that stuff. And it can, you know, you can have all kinds of issues, so yeah. So sticking on the JADC2, uh, for JADC2, the Pentagon should learn from the 5G community in defense news. And this was a nice article by Dan Pat. And uh, kind of goes, it starts here. 
you know, the conventional wisdom says that unless the joint staff establishes common standards up front and enforces them vigorously, the service weapon systems won't be able to collaborate in operations when they finally show up in the field. But this approach makes it difficult to adopt trends from the fast-moving commercial sector, and historic track record for this concept is poor. So he brought in a, a bunch of kind of like examples, Link 16 for one, um, where it was is really difficult to kind of get this, even when you have like a consensus on what that standard should be to get adoption. And then there's like this proliferation of all these um, different different styles of, of Link 16. So they have different capabilities in themselves and they kind of go into the internet, for example. It doesn't have, you know... A, a quote omniscient governing standards body you know no ref no requirements process um, but it does have a reference model uh, and and allows for folks to kind of like reuse code and, and kind of you know move towards kind of standardization so it's kind of an interesting you know the, this federated versus centralized approach to jadc2 you know i hope more people kind of are looking at uh, you know i think in, in the government of course we always people always say like you need that you know unity of command and control right um or it'll never get done but you know i guess the 5g community did, did things a little bit differently um and they have like you know commercial guys that were you know purposefully contributing to you know these kinds of reference models and and then like adoption kind of leads to the winners you know maybe that didn't make much sense what'd you what'd you get out of this <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I thought this was really fascinating. Um, and I mean, Dan's point, uh, Dan and, and other gentlemen, uh, is dead on about, you know, the different attempts that have been done to make everything work together. I mean, Link 16 works by the skin of its teeth. Um, and yeah, the low data rates and different things like that. And, um, you know, they still have issues with it. So, but when you think back to like jitters, like even just making radios, across the you know across the services that could be used for uh, communications in a ground environment it was still incredibly challenging to do that uh, you know you're supposed to have common waveforms but you know they would find out soldiers on the field would find out that uh, like they loaded up a different waveform because there's like multiple ones from different vendors and they had nuances between them and so you would have to sometimes unload a waveform and reload a waveform to open channel com channels anyway total mess right so i do love this idea of not just a federated but the idea of using i mean i i view it as essentially using prototyping you know in terms of you know the different vendors coming in and saying hey i think this you know this type of implementation would work um or hey we're, we're using you know this type of messaging that we think could be common for this and to bring it in and just sort of iterate on that um, you know, and the updates to it, right? Sort of like, sort of like the, uh, sort of like the internet too, right? It's like, yeah, you don't change the, you know, TCP/IP, but you know, you can change, you know, different different things around the edge, you know, different languages and how different things connect. I mean, that's always being iterated on and improved. Um, you know, how browsers access information and stuff. So, you know, it's like there's a lot that can happen around it too, and so I love that idea of like you know, bring different vendors in. And it seems like convergence, like the thing we talked about last week, project convergence with the army getting out there and trying to get things to talk to one another and learning from it. Uh, hopefully they're kind of, they're taking some of those lessons and feeding it back into the CFT. So we'll, yeah, I guess we'll see more how that goes, but I thought that was a great article. I learned a lot there. Excellent. We got DOD software giants signed joint collaboration statement from Kessel Run. Kessel Run and Platform One are both uh, such huge thought leaders and cultural leaders for the department, starting with Kessel Run smuggling def DevSecOps into the DoD and continuing with Platform One leading the way to Kubernetes, um, a common repo, and a desire to bring the entire community together to leverage common enterprise services, said Laura Nausenberger, uh, who is the Air Force CIO, of course. And uh, so they didn't really give too much, you know, information exactly what was meant here. And there's also a Fed scoop um article on it but i suppose it means platform one is moving away from the previous or castle run is moving away from his previous platform provider which was help me here pivotal and <laughs> yeah and so they might just be you know going on to uh you know party bus and iron bank and and that kind of stuff from from platform one and, and using that so 
um might be big news uh i suppose what are, you, what are your thoughts yeah no i i mean castle runs for a while been, been migrating away from pivotal um and so this seems like a natural evolution they're they're both a great partner because you know um i think in one of the other articles nick talks about how much kessel run spends on licenses and that's not not unique to kessel run there's a lot of programs that are kind of have their own environment set up and they're not using you know a standardized a standardized setup that has some economies of scale and you wind up paying through the nose for all the all the different licenses and cots products so so yeah it just makes it makes a lot of sense for kessel run they're trying to kind of standardize some things and 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 uh really sort of uh, specialize a little bit more um, in, in, in the key their key uh, key capabilities and so this just makes uh, makes a lot of sense I think yeah and as you were just saying there Nick Shay Lon <laughs> he actually had a really interesting uh, article that came out on LinkedIn called let's catch up with China within six months and one of the interesting parts there which kind of you know was going along with this and maybe um, he saw that coming, or I don't know. Otherwise, he said, for a DevSecOps team, uh, we must merge all redundant platforms across the services, leverage Platform One, and fund it properly. And as you're saying, he, he even brought out the number there. Kessel Run was spending $60 million on their DevSecOps platform, while Platform One kind of remained unfunded for years, um, even though it was the only approved DevSecOps solution by the CIO and ANS. So... And so it looks like he might be getting what he wanted uh, from Kessel Run, but it, he was also saying, well, the same needs to be true for Kobayashi Maru, the army, you know, of course, with its uh, uh, software factory and, the, and then the Navy efforts as well. So I wonder if uh, Platform One will be kind of like the platform to rule them all. I, I don't really have a good enough understanding of, you know, software development to know whether that makes sense or not or exactly what that entails but um you know interest interesting thoughts and we'll see what happens you know nick shaylon definitely goes hard on the enterprise tools and um he, he actually said you know we we should often have multiple tools available to developers so i wonder how that kind of plays out here with platform one yeah i i mean i agree with him in, in the sense that it's kind of silly that DoD doesn't have a single, single platform. I mean, there are some nuances in terms of, you know, nuances I'd say in terms of how the different services CIOs view things, right, and how their different uh, approving authorities for like an ATO, you know, what they want to see and the format they want to see it and all that kind of stuff. But fundamentally, there's really not much difference, right? I mean, it's it's software development using you know uh, tools that you know, you know, are used commercially, but that are tailored for, you know, security aspects of DoD and a lot of the stuff that Platform One has spent a lot of effort on developing, like the like the Party Bus um, or the Big Bang. You know, some of these efforts that basically get you up and running, ready to go to develop. Uh, you know, really fast, where you might you might take a year before kind of like piecing your tools together and figuring out what you need. Um, they they kind of get you running and they give you give you a little bit of help along the way. So, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't make sense. I don't know why Kobayashi Maru is doing their own thing. I don't, I don't know why the Navy is, it, Black Pearl is, you know, they're, well, they're I think Black Pearl, Pearl, yeah, weren't they working anyway. with yeah. Platform One pretty closely? I wasn't really sure to what degree. It was kind it was, of just like carryover or work or like they were standing up their own thing. They were adopting the Iron Bank, uh, the container repository uh, that, that have, some, you know, security have already been secured. So they're adopting the Iron Bank, but they're, as I understand it, they're going off in their own direction for the other platforms. But Platform One has a lot of different tools you can choose from. It's not like it's not like you just have to use the one tool. I mean, there's like you know suites of tools, and it's, it's always being updated. I mean, that was Nick's thing was that he was always updating it and uh, refreshing and you know um, stuff like that. So and now, and now we'll talk about another effort. I mean, it, it just shows you that I I don't think if you if you put a gun to the other services heads and said you know, tell me why you have to use your own thing. I, I don't think they'd be able to give a great case for it. I think it's just that they want control of their own kind of domain. So, yeah, I think that's what it boils down to. But, man, this article, I, I just have <laughs> to say, like, what, I mean, it, really, really good. I mean, very thoughtful, and I feel like he hit almost everything that we've, like, been talking about um, 
it's stuff that we, you know, internally we talk about all the time. We're like, this has to happen. So it's really awesome to see him put it on, on paper. Um, the one, you know, this, yeah, career pass. I mean, we were actually, there's been teams stood up talking about having separate career pass and it's just been resisted. Um, uh, you know, getting DAU to change is just, you know, it's a continued battle. Um, but where was the one thing that I thought was really, really good? Um, was it the, the oh, time yeah, yeah. thing? Actually, the value stream one. So, you, you know, he talked about the different value streams. And I think we've talked about this before, too, about how do, what's the right way to fund an enterprise capability? Because, and I've struggled with this, too, because we're thinking about it with digital engineering, too. And, and it's like, do you, is it, does it make more sense for it just to be like DOD to get a huge pot of money and to just dump it in there and say, here's all these tools, here's all these, you know, um, you know, here this is, is this environment you can create models and follow, you know, do all the stuff you need to do. Um, or does it make more sense to have, you know, programs bring some, you know, some skin to the game. And so I love this idea of like leverage both enterprise funding and consumption funding. So put, put enough fund at the enterprise level you know, to keep keep the capacity to allow some, you know, allow updates, you know, figure out different innovative ways, maybe work some training, things like that, have some coaching, but the consumption funding is like, you know, allow that to drive it. Like if it's creating value, then more and more people are gonna bring, more programs are gonna bring, you know, funds to the game. So I, I thought that was a great, great, great concept that we had been thinking about, but I never kind of had it framed this specifically. So I uh, thought that was good. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, those value streams were supposed to align with each of those offices within what he calls the technology and information merged enterprise time. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then so what are the ones that he has here? Um, there's an acquisition team, a transport and connectivity team, which I think actually overlaps with like what his vision for like a JADC2 program office might be. I wasn't quite sure. Um about that but this is the kind of thing that he was talking about in the last article where he said um, i wanted 20 million dollars to go solve jadsy 2 whatever solve means <laughs> right but and, and i couldn't even get that m amount of money out of people right and then there's the cloud team DevSecOps team data team zero trust team uh, modeling and sim team training team ai ml team um so i guess all of those would report to the time director and they would have value streams associated with them and then consumption funding would be tied to that in some way something like that yeah that's that would be my understanding is it was you know there was um there are these different uh, teams and i mean they're almost like product lines i'm, I'm assuming like yeah. yeah the transport connectivity team is you know i think what he was saying for 20 million was like an mvp basically to have a mesh network that you could you, you could basically have most of the communications ride on uh, so basically, you'd have your tactical cloud, which which is being worked on. I mean, that 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 idea is is being pursued. Yeah. But isn't DARPA think, have is, a huge effort on that? Like, wasn't that the mink? Um, right. The no, they might. They might. I don't. Yeah, that's yeah, that's possible. But you know, I think his point is, this is trying to like, you know, try to recreate the wheel and start like from scratch yeah. with all these different things. Is like, is this going to kind of wind up in, you know, a morass? So he's probably not wrong. Yeah, I'd be interested to see, you know, what what becomes of Nick Shalon in terms of like his interaction with the Department <laughs> of Defense, right? Because um, he's, I guess he's he can do whatever he wants, right? <laughs> he's kind of entrepreneurial talent. He doesn't have to stick around, um, but it would be good kind of if he if he did stick around and, and keep poking the bear a little bit because he's always putting out interesting things. And one of those things he said was like, all the I went to like tons of DARPA, uh, <laughs> you know programs and stuff like that saw what they're doing and like almost nothing was directly relevant to the things i needed in production i was like well that was i guess maybe that makes sense from darpa's mission but yeah i i, I, I don't know if he, i think he just didn't really completely understand what darpa how darpa operates i mean they actually have been trying to get better i mean they have a goal for the last like 10 years they've they've had a goal where they you know they actually do want to see a service takeover project like they want to take it to a certain point i think you saw that right with uh, all the stitches stuff is you know they, they get it to a point where they're like yeah we, we got as much from academia as we could now we need a service to own this thing so they've been doing more putting more effort into that but i think for a long time 
you know, they tried to sell stuff at leadership levels and get adoption, but, you know, sometimes it would fall through. But I think they've had enough success stories the last few years to, uh, to show that they know how to do it. It's just, I mean, finding the right customer at the right time, right? I mean, that's the value dev thing that we keep talking about. So let, let's circle back to Platform One real quick. Air Force strikes agreement with contractors to resell Platform One products from FedScoop. And it looks like the, the deals with Booz Allen Hamilton and a number of other companies I haven't heard of, such as Seed Innovation and Brain Goo. Um, but apparently, you know, these companies will be able to resell Platform One, um, including Iron Bank and Big Bang, um, to, you know, I, I suppose other companies that would actually be the ones implementing it, which is kind of always the challenge, right? Because the government doesn't really build most of this stuff. So how do you get a government enterprise you know tool over to them for their own use and uh, i guess previously platform one had kind of been doing that directly with the customers but that's probably pretty challenging for most companies so maybe you know having a an intermediary company makes makes sense um and it's also there's an the agreement was struck this one was interesting to me and i'd be interested to hear what it means or more about it but the arrangement was struck platform one um, through an other transaction agreement between Platform One and Catalyst Campus, a nonprofit that will work to improve the products. Uh, so, so there it is. Yeah, Catalyst Campus is a. It's almost like um, it's almost like a Platform One, but it's 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 set up differently. It's it's like a cyber sort of you know grooming uh, a grooming entity. It's out in Colorado, and it's more space focused, but. Um, but they've yeah they've sort of stepped up and been getting involved in, in, in other areas. So this is this is one where I, I guess they, uh, you know, I think it has a lot to do with Joey Aurora, who no. <laughs> who's, uh, seems to be involved in everything. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, this is this is kind of an interesting one. I would love to see the agreement because um, I don't quite understand. They talked about sort of chipping in, you know, for every product that's sold, like. Platform One gets a piece of it, and that part is really intriguing to me because I don't know how that would work. But, um, but I mean, in general, though, having Iron Bank um, as a, as like a, a product that these, you know, and I don't know these companies really either. Uh, I've heard of Intersoft, but um, you know, having those the ability to take the Iron Bank containers, build that into your product. So when you go back to sell to the government, it's like, hey, this thing's ready to go. Uh, you know, maybe you don't have a continuous ATO, but you have like a streamlined path to an ATO. So, um, and then Big Bang, yeah, if you're building it on the enterprise that the government's going to use, assuming that 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 would be the customer would use that, um, you know, then you could say, yeah, this is, you know, we have the tool, same tool sets. Like all you need to do is sort of like, you know, bring this in, and you can continue to to build on this on this uh, capability that we've we've developed. So. Uh, yeah, that that I kind of get that that part of it. Um, that makes sense, but yeah, there's a lot more to learn here about how this will work and what types of products they actually will sell. So yeah, it would be interesting if like give some clarity as to how do you get to like a continuous ATO or some some other streamlined thing um, to kind of like force adoption in a way. I don't know. The continuous ATO is a tough one. I mean, a lot of it has to do with getting buy-in from the accreditation authorities. So showing them like your tool chain and, uh, you know, getting them comfortable with like how you're doing testing uh, to, to make sure it's, you know, meets all the security parameters and uh, building the trust, right? It's, that's why we kind of talk about it as like a maturity. It's almost a maturity thing where when you're first starting out, you're, it's unlikely you're gonna jump into a, a continuous ATO. And so you have to kind of build up to that. Um, and for things that are delivering to weapon systems, major weapon systems, you'll probably never have a continuous ATO, at least not in the foreseeable future, um, just because they, they want you to go through, um, you know, actual kind of more operational type testing where you you actually go fly the thing and whatnot before you deploy it to the whole fleet. So, you know, that, I think I think there will be a lot more in that front uh, on the cloud is as a, as a, uh, AOs, authorizing officials that, that um, certify the ATOs, as they get used to seeing more and more programs, kind of using these tools and being secure and, and all that. I think you will see more programs get easier access to it, but it's hard. Yeah. I mean, ultimate, I feel like at some point, someone just needs to say, what is right? You know, like ultimately at some point in the future, 
a hundred years, let's call it, <laughs> you know, like we should be able to deploy uh, software, um, you know, even to like systems in the field um, on the fly. And, you know, of course, Nick Shalon was working on that, right? Uh, F-16 and, yeah, and, 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 and the, the, and the, the U-2s and the like. So, you know, I, I feel like when you have that kind of mentality, then it's just like, okay, well, we need to get there at some point, <laughs> right? So, uh, even for the web, major weapon systems, I don't know whether that means like only new programs should do it, or like whether you can really force that in, in, into existing major systems. But um, at some point, we hope to see it. Yeah, yeah. The F sixteen and YouTube is done on non mission critical stuff. So especially for non mission critical stuff, like things that affect like the f- the flight software. Yeah, that'll be a tougher one. But yeah, I agree with you. If Tesla can do it and you know, SpaceX can do it. Like, yeah. Yeah, the flights. Yeah, the flight software. I mean, that should be kind of separated from from the the other systems anyway, so that when you're messing with one, you're hopefully not messing with the other. But I guess you know, the more you get into like AI and stuff like that, then that would be increasingly difficult, right? Yeah. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. That will. You're right. That will be interesting. Is as you have like like the autonomy core system. I wonder how segregated the flight control software is from the mission be control just because just because of the nature of you know things they all have to work together so closely it's not like the pilots handling you know handling a one piece of it and there's like a separate system yeah that, that is a, that's a good point as ai ml start to become more and autonomy start to become more uh, more dominant yeah maybe that maybe maybe you'll have to maybe it'll actually be the opposite maybe you'll have to if you want to deploy fast you're going to have to find a way to do it in a secure way so so that even the flight control software is well hopefully those test beds of like autonomous systems like i don't care if i lose a hundred you know valkyries as long as that 101st valkyrie is just like sweet and i can like do all the things i need it to do and it's adaptable right as long as it like gets to the target (laughs) and completes the mission (laughs) um all right, so well, I mean, like, yeah, they'll they'll figure it out at some point. I, I would assume, you know, even even for the the flight stuff, I, you know, I, I get you don't want it to to crash, but um, especially when people are on. So that, I mean, that's going to take longer. But the next one we got here: War Games show Air Force isn't accelerating fast enough. High Note says Air Force Magazine. Um, he High Note. Um, well, I guess <laughs> here's high, what High Note is saying. The Air Force used to think that it had until 2030 or so to achieve its evolution, but now it needs to get to a new posture by around 2027. So there we go. We got three years shaved off a nine-year time frame. And given the advances, of course, that are being made by China and other adversaries. So ask what key capabilities the Air Force needs. Certainly, you're going to see better weapons. Right now, we're in the need for better air-to-air weapons a better ship-killing weapon, and a better surface-to-air missile-killing weapon, he said. So, again, you know, this is one of the things. It's it's not like a fixation on platforms. It's actually, you know, better weapons here, Um, things that go on the systems. And those tend not to get the same kind of, I don't know, attention from people and from Congress and from from funding. But, you know, the AMRAAM, how old is the AMRAAM now? (laughs) It's got to be from the 1970s, right? Something like that. I mean, it's gone through some evolutions. Like the 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 D model now is like uh, it's almost not the same missile. I mean, it's very very complicated. <laughs> missile. Um, but but yeah, it's essentially yeah, uh, roughly the same. I guess you could say. I I think I saw something on there that was like a, they're working on like a straight up new missile, like not AMRAAM, but a new air to air system. Is that right? I mean, they've they've been talking about doing a million different things. Um, they never really seem to get like the funding. El Razum, I'm a little bit surprised he says that about the ship killing because El Razum is actually a pretty darn darn good weapon. But yeah, in terms of well, the AIM AIM nine AIM nine no AIM ninety AIM nine is there the Sidewinder. Sidewinder, yeah, there was a new missile that came out not too not too long ago that uh, was a lot of the the pilots had really good things to say about it because. Um, it gave them gave them like enhanced division. They could see, uh, they could see off of the side uh, and things like that. So they had better because they could actually see through the missile using the missile sensors. They could actually see it in the cockpit. Um, 
Yeah, so there, I mean, there's been work on it, right? But I, I, I do think that the Afghanistan uh, and Iraq-Afghanistan wars really pushed us to focus more on uh, bombs. So a lot of efforts gone into, you know, small diameter bomb and, you know, we have we have done, you know, things like JASM and JASM extended range and things like that. So cruise missiles are still spending a lot of work on. But but yeah, it's been it's been a lot of bomb bomb focus, uh, you know, getting the mop for 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 nuclear stuff and different things like that. So I think I think, yeah, it sounds like the, the focus is shifting. And now we're now we're back to the air superiority battle, which is really interesting because air superiority 2030 was like the Air Force brand almost because uh, that was all, every every one of their investment strategies was always geared towards we need these capabilities by 2030 um, we need this to be in place so it sounds like that focus now is okay they have some of the things they need but they see a big gap in the weapons space so yeah pretty interesting i mean they should i mean i i kind of get like the, the the need to plan and these weapons are large and take a long time but being like fixated on 2030 and like the uh, Navy's always fixated on its 30-year shipbuilding plan. It, it just makes it feel like things are far too locked in with too little information <laughs> about what the threats will be and what the technology will enable at that time um, to be kind of like, you know, really locking in on something like that. It's, it's even 27. Um, I guess it's kind of at the end what? of the fit-up now, but still. Yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense for some of the large, like, makes sense for, like, the NGAD F-35, B-21 systems, but, um, and some of the missile programs are, you know, are pretty intense, but yeah, it, you know what's actually interesting about this article is that he, he goes on to say that the Air Force is now looking to large numbers of unmanned aircraft as one way to achieve uh, the combat power needed without the expense of building every airplane with a seat, displays, and escape system. Um, he says, like, the profusion of airborne targets will make an adversary's job harder uh, and make it easier for the Air Force to achieve air superiority. So it's kind of interesting that he talks on one hand about like uh, large numbers of unmanned aircraft and then goes back to needing a lot of like air to air weapons because it does sort of seem like, well, maybe you've negated the need for a lot of air to air weapons if you have a lot of unmanned aircraft out there. Uh, do you do you need, um, you know, like an old Phoenix or some kind of thing that shoots at 100 miles if you're just sending in unmanned treatable style aircraft um well, i'm sure it will so, be kind of that yeah. mix right you want to take out the the j20s where the dude in the back seat is going to be controlling like these these swarms of other things coming at you too um and then they lose capability if they don't have that kind of point guy i don't I, you know it's hard to kind of say but i kind of agree with you um uh, but to some degree you it seems like you got to hedge your bets with a bunch of a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No I, doubt. I wonder. Yeah. But I, you made me think, though. Like, I wonder how much of the stuff. You know, like people are saying, like, oh, we were focused on you know terrorism and global war and terror stuff, and so we took our eye off the ball um, in terms of great power competition or whatever they call strategic competition these days. And um, I wonder how much that's true. Like, well, from one respect, like most of the budget didn't really shift. You know, like you're still buying carriers and F-35s and stuff. But from another aspect, it's like, well. You were saying like we had to focus on weapons, right? On bombs and shit. And then we had, and then there was also like the electronic defeat. Like there was just straight up no interest in electronic warfare kind of until that time, right? Or or like, that was my understanding. We're really far behind. And it was actually the IED stuff and other things like that. that kind of put, put our eye back on that ball, not GPC. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think though, even, even if you, even if the investments continued and I will say, Thank God for the Navy with regards to electronic warfare because they always they always recognized that that was you know um, that that was going to be the space that they had to operate in and and they they've always put a lot of effort into it. Next Gen Jammer was driven primarily by the Navy. Now the Air Force is on board with it, but um, yeah, the Air Force always relied on stealth. And then once low band radar started to become more of a thing, they realized like uh, maybe that's a basket we don't want to put all of our eggs in. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of shifts around. I'll say, like, I think I think you're right. It's not like we've completely lost the ball, but it also like leadership, attention, and focus. You know, if it's not on these other capabilities and and putting new thinking and new ways of like you know achieving some of these missions, uh, then the people, the lower level people, just default to like legacy. So I don't think you had a lot of thought leadership about like new ways of defeating China because everybody was you know all the leadership was like. We need J dams on you know on target you know taking out the terrorists so yeah I think I think it did steal a lot of attention 
I, one other one other thing, Eric, on this that I thought was really intriguing and, and harking back to your conversations about the Marine Corps is uh, General High Note talk, uh, talked about the need to multiply operating locations to complicate the enemy's targeting problem, saying the Air Force will transition toward a force that increasingly will be runway independent, <laughs> taking advantage of unmanned systems <laughs> that can launch from a vehicle. I'm sorry. I don't think I ever thought I'd hear the Air Force say runway independent. That is uh, that is really fascinating. So <laughs> the, well, uh, that says a lot. The, the thing is, like, nothing he said there should should be like a shocker or like you don't even need to be like high strategic thinker with detailed knowledge of like the systems to be like man (laughs) we need to be more resilient we need more like autonomous like lower cost weapons to like swarm things we need you know more weapons that can can do what we need them to do right it's just like um i don't know like why is it it just takes forever to move the damn ship right (laughs) Uh, well, I mean, I think what it it sends a message, and I mean, these generals. It's why it's why you almost never see anyone lower than a three star ever go to the hill. It's because they sort of like, you know, you have to know what you can say, what you can't say, and you kind of have to know where the chief's ear is at. So clearly, General Brown is you know is pushing his his uh, folks to think differently. And so the fact that they're saying this, yes, they've always talked about it. It's always been a conceptual thing, but. You know, by messaging it this clearly and, and actually going to the media with it, uh, I think they're showing that this is a major shift for, for them and they're, they're going to put more investments in the space. So I think next year's budget, not this one that's coming up because it'll probably be whatever it is, but the one after, I think. You mean FY24, not 23? FY24, yeah. FY24, I think, will be a, a more game-changing budget. Um, and we'll talk about one of the other th- uh, things that I think will play into that is there's there's a hard push to sell Congress on divestments, right? And a lot of this stuff, the Air Force did want to do, but the divestments always kept them from having the, the, the space to do it. So if they can actually effectively divest some of the things that they want to, and they're showing through wargaming why it's necessary to, to the Hill, uh, and they get success there, then I think you'll see a lot more, um, a lot more of this other stuff be pursued, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of depressing, right? Like, all right, like 24 is the transformative Biden budget. And it's like, Seriously. well, Biden is going to be up for re-election in 24, you know? <laughs> uh, they're they're talking 20, 23 was going to be the big one. Um, but I think you're probably right that the realistic, you know, answer is 24 will be kind of like where a lot of those divestment and, and things will really be taking shape. Yeah, it's like our PBBE commission, right? It'll be 24 will be like, uh, we'll probably miss the boat on 24. Well, 24 will be so when like the, the recommendations drop, right? Right. So it'll be 25 before anything could ever. It's like, yeah, it's the way the budget's like, it's like, it's, yeah, it's madness that it, like everything pushes out so far. <laughs> By the way, there is a really good uh, post from um, Hondo Gertz. Did you see that one? No. no it, it was, but... if you can fix one thing to make DOD procurement system more effective, what would it be? And he has changing the budgeting project process, reduce barriers to entry, reduce contracting complexity, other ideas. And <laughs> 32% were budgeting process, 46% were contracting complexity. Um, and then a lot of people were kind of just saying like, well, those are kind of like intertwined problems, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the same yeah, thing with barriers to entry, ones. like all of them, it's just like... <laughs> But yeah, this is a this is a uh, this is an integrated game that we play. No, no one piece can be <laughs> can move. Yeah, so yeah, budget drives all sorts of stuff. <laughs> uh, the next one we got here: uh, How to break a program? Funding instability requirements changes from Air Force Magazine. Uh, so this was kind of an interesting uh, discussion here. Our, the Air Force RCO chief Randy Walden was kind of talking about the milestone system, and he said. Uh, basically, you know, one of the things he's moving out on for B-21, uh, the bomber, was that they're going to have multiple mini milestones as a solution to, like, the milestone C production decision. Uh, I'd like to understand exactly what he meant with that um, and, and, like, what does that look like, you know? Because I, I would almost fear, like, well, do you have to go up to, like, the big decision makers, you know, multiple times, you know, instead of just one time and just bang it out? It's like, you, you got to do multiples of them and you're never really getting there or something like that. I, 
maybe that's different for the RCO than everyone else because they have direct access to everyone that matters. But I don't know. Did you were you able to take anything away from that? Or have you heard anything about this uh, multiple mini milestone approach? Inch stones. I've I've heard them called inch stones in, in the past. Well, I mean, I, I'm B21 still kind of a black box, but in general, the RCO has operated where they, um, you know, they give leadership, they check in with leadership all the time uh, on, on different things. So given that they are run by what they call a corporate board and it has the chief of staff and the secretary of the Air Force on it, um, you know, they, they give them regular updates and they check in on things and stuff. So, I mean, I think what he's getting at is that and I don't disagree with this. I mean, instead of having like a milestone B, um, that's like, okay, we're locking down the, uh, you know, the initial baseline and doing our IBR and all this stuff, you know, why not lock, why not lock down the subsystem, right? Like the first subsystem and say, okay, we think, we think this has, you know, all the technology meets all the requirements for, you know, for the next five years. And we, you know, we don't want to spend too long, you know, muddling with this so this one's this one's good we think we could do this now we're going to focus our efforts on this other one that has more risks this other subsystem um so that kind of makes sense like you could break things out that way but i think it i think that whole conversation like this whole whole discussion this thing this whole discussion and this that that, that they had at the mitchell really annoyed me because i just think they went off on these weird tangents about things but this is a this is also a weird tangent because yeah, that's not the problem, separating milestones. Like, that might work, but it's the fact that the whole thing is locked down with a single cost estimate, a single technical baseline, single, you know, cost, um, you know, puck and APUC, uh, you know, cost uh, elements where you can't change them without, you know, disrupting the whole thing. So and the bigger issue is the baselining than the milestones. Like, even in software, and he does mention software. Yeah, you have software, you have many multiple milestones. You might have, like, release planning, sort of milestone to say, we met with the users, we prioritized that here's what we're gonna deliver in the next cycle. Um, and then when you do that, once you've, once you've actually developed it, you might have another milestone that's like a gate that says, yeah, we've done everything the user wants, we've trained everybody, it's ready to go, they're ready for it, you know, the downtime to upload it, blah, 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 whatever. You know, you can have those types of milestones, that's easy, but it's, it's the bigger and structural things that are the problem, right? Yeah, no, I agree with you. Uh, the, the baseline is the problem. and. The milestones are actually just, I guess, kind of like smaller instances of those because like the baselines, like I'm making a kind of program long decision or baseline fixed parameters of cost schedule, technical performance. And then the the milestones are kind of just like incremental updates on that. But they're also like, you can imagine, right, for the B21, you know, they, they have some prototype units that they're working on that's kind of through EMD. And then they kind of already let, you know, like the, the next three, I believe, you know, kind of like LRIP, you know, models to go um, without a milestone C. You didn't really need the milestone C. Like the milestone C, like when you have it all as one event, it's presuming like there's this like really bright line between development and production and everything stops after development and you've like cut the cut the line and you have like this updated baseline and you go into milestone C when really it's kind of like an incremental decision process and constantly evolving so i think you're right the problem isn't with the milestone it's with the idea of like a fixed baseline to start and then the milestones are just like updates to that baseline or something like that yeah exactly i mean you're dead you're dead on if 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 somebody went and did a study of every program and i have to admit i didn't read general shackerford's report yet but you know it looks like he looked at a lot of different programs and came up with issues that he found but, you know, if you looked across all of them, I don't think you would find one that had a multi-year procurement where the first unit was the same as the last unit, right? Like, you're, you're invariably, there's testing that continues to go on, problems found in the field that feed back into the pipeline, and you update that production baseline. Uh, to not do that would be almost malpractice because you'd be fielding something that you know is wrong, and even when you had a chance to fix it. So... Yeah, no, totally agree. It's 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 that whole it's that whole uh, you know five thousand two structure that needs to be broken apart. All right, on on to uh, your favorite subject here. Defense Department announces newest new UFO task force from CBS News. The agency announced on Tuesday the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group, AOIMSG. <laughs> it's not a 
it's like area of interest msg <laughs> i don't know aoy msg not a great acronym uh and this is supposed to synchronize washington's efforts to detect identify and attribute objects of interest in special use airspace uh so they're they're claiming that this is a, a big new task force here on on ufos it, they didn't really bring out all that much information but um there you go ufo watch in, in an apartment of defense yeah, what do you mean, me, Eric? You're the one <laughs> yeah, I was just kidding with you. you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one. I'm the one interested to see be tracking on these because I I want to see like what the what the hell this actually means. You know, it's like because my my opinion of are there UFOs like went from like zero to not zero pretty quick. So, um, I, I, I mean, definitely suspicious. There there's a couple of good blogs out there that were like people that are really smart about this show how like cameras can create some of these effects and different things but um there's and like software tracking software sometimes will create certain effects when it's tracking something that's anomalous or something but yeah no i agree with you it's pretty crazy some of the the navy the navy pilots seem pretty freaked out and they seem you know it seems like those guys would see stuff a lot but uh, yeah terrible acronym um i don't think there's anything really different about this other than it's no longer like a Navy thing. It's more of like a DOD thing. So, um, yeah, <laughs> that's probably the only difference. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure what it is. It's like there was that, what was it, the ATIP Advanced Aircraft Identification Program. And it was really weird that that program manager, who seemed like a weirdo um, anyway, was like going out on like CNN and talking about all this stuff. And like it seems like the government was yeah. in some ways in cahoots with the dude from uh, Blink-182 and the to the stars academy i was just like there's got to be some weird there's like some weird ass things going on imagine being the guy in government like kind of like running this thing it's like are like i guess they would have a better idea of what they're up to but it it, it feels like a funny position to be in i you know well that guy yeah i was amazed i listened to everything that guy because he did some podcasts too and i was fascinated just like i'm surprised that he was like saying things um and didn't like get immediately jailed or something. But I do think that they will, one thing this group will do is it will probably go public a lot more than we did in the past. I think it will, I think it will try to like be a little bit more transparent and say, yeah, no, that was nothing. And then actually if something is something, you'll never hear about it, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> but in interesting that they're like pulled the intelligence community into it. So that, that's pretty, pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess we'll we'll see what goes on with this one. I think um, a number of other countries have been kind of doing similar things, especially like um, France has always been into this really big, and Mexico is coming out with stuff in Brazil. So I don't know. I I guess we'll we'll see more. You know, maybe the world gets crazier than we expected. Uh, but <laughs> moving on, <laughs> moving back to acquisition world. Um, what, what do we got here? Average age of USAF aircraft drops slightly, but eight fleets now exceed 50 years old from air force magazine so the purchases new purchases of f-35s kc-46 and one and c-130 transports have only made a small dent in the age of the air force fleet overall it went down to 29 years from 30 30 years the average age of an airframe um but a lot of these uh, models are actually really old right like the ones that are over it 50 years old include um, the the T-38 trainers, the B-52 bombers, C-135s, KC-135s, of course, all the variants of the 135s, um, and yeah, so that, that's pretty that's pretty old there, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it is crazy. I mean, B-52s are just incredible in terms of how long they've been around. The T-38s are not doing well, so B-52s still seems to be structurally really sound. It's going to get a engine engine and uh, um, basically a whole remodel on the inside of it. The whole co cockpit's going to be remodeled. Um, but the T-38s are going to be replaced. Um, I, I think the a lot of those 135s are, are probably really close behind as, uh, you know, KC-46 comes in. They'll, some of those will go away. Um, and, yeah, we'll see. Uh, this is, It's interesting. Um, interesting just, like, the impact of, not that many KC-46s, but I guess I guess it's really the F-35 because there have been like a thousand F-35s. So, um, well, I guess a thousand, like ever, entire, right? But like three hundred. Yeah, I think just, there's three hundred. Yeah, there's three hundred and two. They say F-35s in the fleet for Air Force. 
Is that all it said? Was all 300 and something? Yeah, 302, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, I would have thought that would have been like double that. Okay. Well, that's surprising. Yeah, the, well, I, the delivery has yeah. been actually relatively low. I think, you know, the number that had been ordered, you know, is way higher than that. Huh. I actually, yeah, I thought, yeah, I guess that's true. A lot of them, there were some of those early purchases, there was enough partners and stuff that probably reduced those numbers quite a bit. But, um, okay, yeah, so 300 F35s, uh, half dozen, dozen or so KC-46s, and yeah, it's surprising it actually did bring it down that much. It's probably the C-130s more than anything, because we've had like a steady flow, as Mike talked about in his recent merge article. Um, we've had C-130s every year that's like nonstop, so... Yeah, the C-130s definitely probably helped out a lot. <laughs> um, sticking with the the Air Force, uh, mis- fighter mission-capable rates fell in 2021. So the F-35A declined from 76 to 68% from 2020 to 2021, and some of that's actually reflecting in uh, the F-35s coming in for their first big engine overhaul and their shortages of engines. Um, about 40 F-35As have been uh, grounded due to that. The next big one is the F-15E, uh, which has fallen three percentage points from 69 to 66. And the F-22, of course, is the lowest of them all at just 50%, reflecting the small size and all the other challenges associated. And then you got the, the A-10 there, which are the healthiest, if least capable, they say, of the of the fighter force, which is not really a fighter, but sure, um, they're always kind of grouped in there. And the A-10 mission-capable rates actually increased from 71 to 72% in fiscal year 21. So there you, there you have it. Yep. I think you said it there. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, the F-22 one is the, is the, is the interesting one, just how, how low that's been. I thought uh, Mike, Mike made a good point on, on that about, you know, it's probably never going to get any better. Um, and they did go through, I mean, if you look at the investment in F-22, they went through a whole major slap. I actually went, got to see the line where they were slapping them and they were like gutting them and reskinning them and, you know, putting on different layers. Wait, when like, was this? Definitely. Uh, this is, uh, it was part of the, it was called the ramp. But they were slapping uh, it like the, this thing like wrapped up in 2009. So they're slapping these guys after 10 years or something like that. Yeah, they were going through. And slap, by the way, is um, systems life extension program. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Exactly. So they were, yeah, they were getting, um, you know, it wasn't all super structural stuff, but they were basically, they, they weren't like replacing all the spars or anything like they, like they were on F-35 on some of them, but it was, it was like they were going in and strengthening a lot of areas using like laser peening and different things. So I, yeah, I got to actually see it and it's really impressive because I didn't realize how many layers of paint. So the coating on an F-22 has something like 20 layers, like Jeez. different layers of different things. So they were basically, you know, stripping that down and re- rebuilding it up and putting a lot of like strengthening and, and re- uh, on the structure so so it would last longer. But um, yeah, despite all those efforts, it's I agree with Mike that it doesn't seem like uh, it's going to come back up anywhere. And that's probably why you don't see it in the long-term force structure. So yeah, definitely 2-1 there is a real standout. I think. I think they brought they brought it back in. I mean, there's been a lot of like back and forth on like that four plus one and whatever. But I, I think like the, the latest discussions are like talking about keeping the 22. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. It, I think the F-35 can do most of the same stuff. If, unless you really think we're going to go air to air combat, um, you know, the guts of software, uh, the processing power of the F-22 is, is not at the level of the F-35. So, um, yeah. yeah. So I think, I think in most of those missions, F-35 could probably take it over. F twenty two is damn impressive. Remember, it's a gorgeous flying. Aircraft. I was a, yeah. I was an intern, I guess, in two thousand eight. It must have been um, on Congressional Hill, and they had like a, a sweet private, you know, air show, and they had an F twenty two, and I was just like, man, that thing can, <laughs> that thing can perform like like hell. Uh, it like floats in the clouds. I mean, if you can just see it, how air to air combat, you would not want to, you would not want to go <laughs> against it. <laughs> but the thing, I, I remember. <laughs> Just like everything is bigger in that program. Like there was like an engine contract I remember I had to I had to look at, it. and it was just like an eight billion dollar engine sustainment contract. I'm just like Jesus, like the amount of money on these things, is just massive. Yeah, they're. I mean, they're all like F22. You forget was like, you know, it was developed like ten years before the F35. Like it's been around. It's been around for a long time. 
Um, but it was like, you know, like the edge of edge of cutting edge, right? So it's like everything on these everything on these stealthy aircraft is super expensive. <laughs> so I hope Endgame will be different. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I mean, I'm still like I'm still bummed that they're like, let we're gonna roll it out, you know, in the twenty thirties. I'm like come on, man. I don't, let's, I don't get it. Let's bring it. Let, let's, I want to see something flying. I guess they said that they, they test flew it. Right. So, um, you know, if you look at like an F, uh, 16 timeline, light, lightweight fighter, you know, they started that in the early seventies, they test flew it in 1972. And then like by 78, it was like, kind of like coming off the line in production, something like that. So maybe six years. So if they test flew it this past year, six years oh, i want to see something coming out you know but and the and yeah, the thing about the f-16 was for years what though. they've been investing in it forever though the and like yeah yeah and the f-16 been, wasn't invested years. in forever right they they scrapped up yeah. some money in in 71 it was actually a supplemental fund um they packard went back and had like a list of programs that they wanted to do for supplemental funding in 71 and that's actually where like they got the lightweight fighter for that that competition in 72 because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of it was internal like development stuff like kind of on a whim and then and then yeah the air force came back and they were like okay this is great two years or whatever of test flying and then they stacked up a whole boat boatload of new requirements because they didn't want it to compete with f-15 they still got that thing out and they ramped up to like 180 production units within a year or two just like that is an absurd, you know. Like, where, how long is it taking F thirty five to get anywhere close to something like that? And then, of course, this that's not apples to apples, right? But by the way, I had to laugh about the F sixteen story, um, you know, in the Pentagon Wars book, where you know they talk about how the F sixteen still was like much bigger and much, and more sophisticated than you know John. Bird yeah, and those guys wanted. wanted they didn't even be, want a radar I, in it to start, like right. <laughs> And then I was laughing because the other day I saw the one like the beefed, a super beefed up F-16 that's like all the foreign countries are buying, like the Middle Eastern countries and stuff. Um, and it is like a beast. <laughs> it's like it's like almost an F-15. Like it just looks so beefy. I was like, oh, man, John Boyd and those guys. <laughs> what it, I mean, is it like 40? I wonder if it's like more than 40,000 you know, pounds or whatever. No, no, no. John Boyd actually. Apparently, John Boyd said like as they were going into like the the SDD ED, EMD development phase, um, he was just like, "Screw it, man! You know, like add forty percent to the wing area because I know there's going to be like requirements growth on this thing, so we might as well just plan for it now." Huh. Interesting. I didn't really yeah. Smart. Uh, but not. I, I guess in some ways he wasn't the luddite that you know people made him out to be, but. Um, in other ways, he definitely was. Uh, so he was just thirty years before his time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe that's like that's what Mark Andreessen says, right? He's just like, there's no such thing as a bad idea. It's like it's just like the timing, whether the timing was right or wrong. Um, the F-16, I mean, it, it came out, I and mean, I wonder what the F-15. Like, there was a story in in Chrome's book where John Boyd was like at a congressional hearing with a general. I think it was General Lowe. And they were asking, like, well, is the F-15 or this... Well, at the time, it was the FX, right? It wasn't the FX. FXX was the F-16. So the FX, the F-15. And they're like, is it going to be a swing wing or, or not a swing wing? Because, like, the Navy had already been going towards a swing wing F-14. And, yeah. and like, John Boy, like, leans over and he says, yo, uh, tell them it's fixed wing. I think in my mind, like, I think, you know, just thinking about it that, you know all the extra gears for the swing wing will actually take away from some of the performance that a fixed wing could get you. And by the way, if you say swing wing, they're going to force you into a, a joint development with joint the Navy. With the yeah. Navy. <laughs> so he says, well, I guess the general just says yeah. is fixed wing. And that was it. <laughs> you know, <like>. <laughs> <laughs> It's so smart. Well, I think you have to end Erica. I think you have to end on the MQ. Yeah, I was, I was going to, because you mentioned that, you mentioned that last time. Uh, (laughs) You're like, man, they just keep wanting to get rid of this thing. And so the, the article here is air force wants to kill a drone that ground commanders say they can't live without from task and purpose. And of course, air force has been saying they want to retire it by 2035 since the slow moving drone can't survive in a hot war against Russia or China. But 
And of course, they also want the budget, you know, for other things. Uh, but now they're saying here, quote, a group of air power experts called on the service to reconsider its decision last week. Not only is the Reaper vital to protecting U.S. interests in simmering conflict zones like those under Central Command and Africa Command, they argued, but can also be adapted to new and important roles against Russia or China for a bargain basement price. So well, I'd be interested on your take on that one. It sounds like you might agree. One, oh yeah, one hundred percent agree. Um, there's a lot of modernization with the MK9, and there's there's a couple of programs that are actually in work that, um, if they get funded, could really show the potential. But yeah, I mean the new missions, you know, um, some of the ones mentioned like wide area surveillance, air and missile defense. I mean the one that gets me in the South China Sea area is the maritime and littoral operations. I mean MQ9 is not a big aircraft. If as long as it's flying you know, low and not in a, you know, in a threatening posture, you, you can, you know, you can probably keep it uh, somewhat, you know, somewhat um, secure or, you know, it's not going to get targeted every time it goes up. Um, Ar- Arctic domain awareness, cruise missile defense, um, you know, I, w- I was also thinking about like um, close air support, like, you know, the fact that you could have, um, you know, you know, have like small missiles, like small Hellfire missiles on there. Uh, you could have those like you know really close to to uh, troops and you'd be able to have good visibility because they have really great cameras and you know MQ, the hellfire is a small manageable missile so it wouldn't create a lot of you know uh, potential casualties uh, if it missed the target or something so um yeah kind of like close air support it just seems like there's like a million different missions that it could have it's very modular it's already been updated a bunch of times and it's uh super cheap to fly so I don't know. It's like it's an unmanned aircraft that's already out there. It's like I don't know why we won't, don't take advantage of all the experience we've had with it and, and make the most of it. You know. So would your position be something like, well, the MQ-9 is cheap and it has these capability profiles. We should keep it. The Global Hawk, though, uh, should probably be replaced. Or like, what's like? How how do yeah. you think about like some of this retired or not? Because you know. I guess you could have an argument to keep or get rid of like literally everything in the force. <laughs> so I'm, I've still, I've still like, um, and I'll, I'll just admit it's like, I don't understand the full suite of ISR platform. So I've never seen, I've never seen the entire picture of what we have, um, just seen pieces. And so some do say that you need persistent ISR in a, in the air domain, that the space domain is, is not enough for some of the missions. So, you know, maybe maybe there is a case to be made for, for the Global Hawk. Uh, but it's in, so expensive. Persistent. It's so expensive, and it's, I mean, you know, yeah, it's it's one of those that it's so exotic and stuff like that. Like, it's not, yeah, it seems like it could be replaced. And there have been some good ones. I don't know if you've ever seen that, uh, that one that's, like, has super, super long wings. Also not very practical for, like, landing, and it, it, but it, it flies for, like, I mean, I think it can stay up there forever almost, uh, but it has super long wings, super long endurance. So something like that, maybe like it would make more sense. Maybe um, that would be cheaper. It could just like hang out up there forever. Was that the Aerovironment one, the like the super long endurance jam? It had a long acronym. It was like super long endurance, extra <laughs> long endurance or something. But it has these like enormous wings. It basically is like a glider at like super high altitudes. But it seems like I think I want if I recall the loiter, it was like it was like crazy, like it could stay up there for days or something. Yeah, but it's got to be going up. The, it's got to be really high if it's gonna be if it's gonna be survivable, right? It's either got to be way cheaper or more survivable than a global hawk. To I think it was up in the U two like U two range, but I'll like find sixty that. seventy thousand feet. Maybe I haven't I haven't seen I haven't heard much about that. It probably isn't still around, but they they've had. They've had things about that, you know, for persistent ISR. They've had different air platforms. That it feels like if you're going to be up that high, you got to be expending a lot of energy. Yeah. No, you're just you're just floating. You're just in that that zone right above the, you know, right right in that middle atmosphere where you're just sort of, you know, um, you know, you don't have to expend a lot of power. I mean, the Goldbach can sit there for a long time too, but this one was like super crazy. Uh, yeah, but anyway, I'll find ultra ultra long endurance aircraft platform. That's what it was called. Yeah, so AFRL did this. Might not still be around, but it was called the Ultra Long Endurance Aircraft Platform or LEAP, um, and it was a uh, they did a two point five day test, and yeah, super long wings. Let's see how far it was. 
you know, they had secure, easy uh, to use navigation, anti-jam, satellite based command and control. Um, developing, yeah, developing a UAS with this level of endurance is an incredible achievement for future warfighting and battlefield success. Um, it will dramatically shift the ISR cost performance curve for the US military. And I guess it was developed pretty fast too. It said the first flight was from concept to first flight was less than 10 months. Uh, trying to see the altitude. Uh, supports missions up to 40 hours. Yeah, it looks like uh, the uh, the Global Hawk will go up to uh, 60,000 feet. Okay, yeah, so that's pretty high. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty pretty good. I mean, it makes sense why I guess it's it's so high there. The Zephyr UAV can go up to 70,000 feet. It looks like there's a number of these that, that can actually... Yeah, the Aerovironment Global Observer um, was a JCTD program, and that one can fly in the air up to 168 hours a week and altitudes up to 65,000 feet. Um, mm. So there's a number of these these uh, programs here that are kind of... Yeah, so you have options. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, the U-2 was uh, 70,000 feet, so yeah, so that's pretty close. Cool. Yeah, it's crazy how old the U-2 is, right? <laughs> like, how, how long ago yeah. some of that stuff was and we're still freaking using it um they, they i guess they just knew what the hell they were doing kelly johnson and crew and you know yeah it was originally proposed in 1953 the u2 <laughs> uh, yeah and they got that thing flying pretty darn fast i mean by the late 50s it was definitely up there for the for the first cia first was 55 55 yeah, yeah we'll see <laughs> okay so two years i mean i guess it's yeah. like it's basically just a giant ass wing but <laughs> you know uh, I'm sure there was a lot of technical yeah, challenges to get there. All right, well, that's all we got time for this week. Thanks, Matt. We'll talk to you next time. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.